You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello there, Internet. Welcome back to another episode of Real Psych. I am Dr. J.D. Barton, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist. And I am Dr. Joanna Witkin, and I am a cognitive neuroscientist. Real Psych is your new favorite podcast where we share our gorgeously thoughtful opinions on the psychological phenomena playing out in all of your favorite movies. J.D., will there be learning? Mm-hmm. Will there be science? Oh, yes. <laughs> Will there be delightfully informal, explorational, informational conceptualizations from two best friends who would be talking about this anyways? Mm, Heck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That laugh. Oh, goodness. What? I was trying to do some serious podcasts. That's how you normally laugh. It is. What's um? Why are you being weird about it? I don't know. I'm sorry. Honestly, it's homophobia. Homophobia is everywhere, y'all. <laughs> I'm just to, here. Yeah, challenge trying to my be a journalist. Implicit biases. Yeah. Woof. Just like Hurtful. every day, I wake up, challenge implicit biases. <laughs> every day, wake up, make fun of my gay ass podcast co-host. <laughs> Can you imagine if I literally was just constantly like, just so mad at you for yeah, hating me? It's like so homophobic. And you're like, was that? I just I thought you were doing a jokes. Was it your? Were those not jokes? <laughs> Don't be mad oh, at me. I thought I'm it was a laugh with, every and not a laugh seconds. at. <laughs> yeah. I need to know that you're not mad at me. I will text you later. By the way. I mean, I do recommend that as a therapist to most people, like to just ask their friends every five minutes if they're mad at them for the rest of their life. Yeah, they love that. That's actually the cure for anxiety. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the cure. It's just having everyone you know tell them, tell you that they're not mad at you every five to ten minutes for the rest of your life until you uh, die. That Lady Gaga song. It's the cure. (laughs) That's the cure. (laughs) (laughs) That's what she means by if uh, I'd fix you with my love. Yeah. If I could find a cure, by reassurance then seeking. I'd fix you with my love by reassurance seeking <laughs> and playing into your own fears by needing you to constantly be reassured. That's love. That's love. You heard it That's here. That's love. 
You heard it here, folks. I mean, after the Wally episode, we taught a lot of people about love, and we skipped that. <laughs> and that was, you know what? I'm sorry. What? That we skipped it. That we missed it. The reassurance we... seeking is like a love language. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was in uh, that triangle. It's like in the middle. What was that? Composite or something? What was it? What's the like mix of all three loves? Joanna. Pop quiz. You have to think like you are assuming that I remember everything <laughs> I've said on this podcast. What was it? It was compassionate. No, it was like something with the C, but it was like the the mix of we can yeah. edit this out. We, can <laughs> <laughs> we sound so stupid. Yeah, it's fine. Tell us we're not stupid. DM us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please reassure us every ten minutes. We need Anyways. you to download on on multiple apps just to let us know that yeah. you love us. Yeah, please. Anyways, we do have fun. We have fun. Um, You want to just, like, talk about this movie? Yeah. Should we, like, switch it up and, like, maybe talk about a movie? What if I was like, let's not talk about a movie? And you know what? (laughs) Then we'd be able to say, hey, everybody listening, that was was a real psych. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe we don't make that joke every single episode. I truly can't. And I made it so smoothly just now, too. Yeah, it was really So it just rolls right off the tongue. (laughs) Let's talk about this movie. All right, right, right. So I'm choosing this week. I went a bit more recent, 2019. What? To be exact. Yes. Um, and so this movie, like, I couldn't really find taglines besides based on a true story, which is not very informative. But I, I found another one on one of the movie posters. Okay, great. And it's... Deep dive. <laughs> I worked real hard. Yeah. Um, Walk all over Wall Street. The Wolf of Wall Street? No. Walk all over Wall Street. 2019. I need more. Um, Walk all over Wall Street. It's a female-driven, like, movie. That, that just, so it's directed by a woman, based on a true story, so that, uh, yeah, there's Molly's like, game? No. Uh the not the lead but the supporting actress. Uh there's a lot of Oscar buzz and she was like very famously snubbed. Oh my god. <laughs> is this Hustlers? It sure is. <laughs> oh my god, Joanna. Okay. I love this pick yeah i'm i'm really excited i just watched marry me which i cannot believe that i have not spoken with you about this specifically Oof. because i watched with my sister we watched halftime her documentary on netflix J-Lo's, okay mm-hmm. and marry me just it was a j-lo weekend yeah great time and then and I she was just like, got married you're celebrating her uh, celebration I jennifer just affleck love it i'm like a full i just drank all of the kool-aid from her her documentary <laughs> I, mean, I just love her. She's, she's also, a treasure. She's also like in, investing or like part of this company that's investing billions of dollars into like Latina owned companies. And that's right. like her big initiative right now. Right. I'm I'm all about her. I'm, Wait, should I'm, she invest having, in real psych? <laughs> I didn't not think about it. Right. Um, no, but I 
uh, she's having a moment in my heart. So yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I oh. had to choose this one. Okay. I mean, I adore Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. I like her so much. Yeah. I could go off on the Jennifer Lopez, like beauty routine. Ugh. I mean, it, it's crazy. She gets more beautiful every day. It's unbelievable. Did you watch her documentary, Halftime? No, I haven't seen the documentary. Okay, you need to watch I that. I did see Marry Me, which... Um, I think we talked about it on the podcast. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what you... That was like your weekend yeah. activity that you that's had That's right. We had... That's right. We did talk about it. Um, woof. That's an early episode. That was right around uh, February 14th, y'all. That's when that movie came out. Mm-hmm. Um I love Hustlers. I think this movie Hustlers is, is fantastic. And there's so much sublime. to talk about. There's so much to talk about. I have no idea even where we're going to go with this. Yeah. I do think Jennifer Lopez was snubbed. Oh, for it was nominations. It was I think a robbery. she is unbelievable in this role. Yeah, she is. I mean, in the documentary kind of talks about that time where she's like uh you know, co-headlining the Super Bowl halftime show, was nominated for a Golden Globe potentially it was being you know was everyone was talking about her being nominated for an oscar had the right. like number one movie like like all of these things that was happening at the same time right just she performed no this was that was the following year like the inauguration yeah for biden and like just like god she bless was america just let's get loud just like so that's right good <laughs> so She's good so good um she is everything that is uh Everything that is glamorous in this world is Jennifer Lopez. Her story is unbelievable. Um, I mean, like, I just think l- let's let's do the how much we love Jennifer Lopez in the first half, and then when we actually start to talk about the film, we'll talk about Ramona, her character. Yeah. But uh, Jennifer Lopez, I think, is uh, is all of the things that um, people aspire to be. I think she is stunning. I think she is hardworking. Uh, I think she is smart. Um, And I think that she is not probably um, a super welcoming, kind, warm person. And I'm very here for that for her in the sense that I think like everybody's always thought she was so arrogant. She's so whatever. She's so whatever. And I think it's like, no, she knew what she had to offer. She knew it was not something that the world was looking to buy. And she had to make sure that she sold it so dedicatedly and convincingly. And now we have all been converted to realize like oh my gosh she is unbelievable i mean yeah she had to stay focused on that mission and you know like it's this kind of the the double-edged sword of of tabloids and just being like not taken seriously but also you know they can't stop talking about her the documentary does a good job of of talking about her parents for a little bit especially Mm -hmm. her mom she has Mm -hmm. like a very latina (laughs) stereotypical like very hardworking mom who like did not take shit and did not set like want her daughters to settle because she's also one of three girls yeah and um yeah i was like whoa i feel that i'm just like yeah be better just always be better taken seriously in the Mm -hmm. music industry i Mm -hmm. think because uh we as a society don't like women who try like you can see that there's like a desire to be big and successful and to be taken seriously and I think we uh, don't like women who uh, 
have agency in like in what is happening. We like this illusion that you know we she was just found and stardom just happened to it's, her. Yeah. And so it's this it, when we see people that seem hungry, we are like disinterested in providing right. it to them. Ambition is like a ugly like or masculine trait that like yes. you don't like. I mean, this is like the Anne Hathaway, the Hillary Clinton, the like, just like confidence. Yeah, trying too hard and wanting it and knowing that you're capable as being the only antidote to getting past everyone yep. else's like yep. lack of belief in you and yep. just you know working harder and you, you know like it's not like she thinks she's the shit all the time but she knows that if she doesn't feel that way and and cultivate that and get there for herself it's not going to happen no one's going to do that for her yeah there's like and, no and other way to succeed besides like cultivating that confidence in herself. Exactly. She also was successful as a film actor before she was doing music, which I think mm-hmm. like a lot of people only think she's like a musician or they only, you know what I mean? Like they don't understand that like she was in Anaconda, she was in Selena, Selena all before, was huge. All yeah, before she, was she released her first, first music. The first Latina to make over a million dollars a movie, like in salary. Yeah. She yeah. like the, 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 Leading the or co-hosting the like Super Bowl halftime show at the same time that she was like being c- considered for an Oscar is like such a rare thing. Yeah, unbelievable. And she she the halftime show, which happened right before COVID started, was so I feel like people forget about it and like the cultural like huge consciousness because it happened right before COVID, but it was so good. And how many women so of good. color have headlined a Super Bowl? Well, it, there's also this very interesting thing in the documentary about how her and Shakira yeah. co-headlined it and how it should have, like, they never do that for other people, right? Like, usually they pick one act and they didn't feel confident enough to choose one Latina to, like, take the whole show. So they had to give it to two Latinas to, like, make it, you know, compelling enough or strong enough for people to, like, be excited about it. Yeah, I'd be interested to know more about that process because I do feel like there's always more than one artist that's performing. Right, but there's one person who kind of owns it and then brings in whoever, whichever guests they want. Whoever they want. And so they'll, you know, I remember like, like uh, very famously, like Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson, like this, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, Aerosmith and like Britney Spears or something like like these like weird combinations of people. But there's like... like, it's one person who like Who's coordinates the whole thing. And then and other people this, are just performing. Right. And there was this whole kind of thing where they each had six minutes to choreograph and get down and the struggle to, to make basically yeah. your entire career's worth of work for both Shakira and JLo who have had like prolific huge, musical careers. Huge careers. In six minutes is like insane. Yeah. Um, I mean, they pulled it off and they did flawlessly and amazingly but yeah i th- there was like some frustration in the documentary about like why because it was they were there was discussions about it just being her for so long and then at the last minute they were like just kidding it's two people yeah. and so yeah. it felt a little bit like a lack of confidence in JLo being able to carry it by herself um, which is absurd insane yeah. everybody that i know that went and saw her residency in las vegas said it was unbelievable Ugh. Ugh. Anyways, big fan. Big fan. Big fan. We love Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez. She is a bona fide movie star as well. I mean, Great she's pick. just, yeah, yeah. Great Very excited. Pick. Cannot wait to talk about this movie Yay. after these messages. We'll be right back. 
bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Uh, We're back. What? We watched it. A pick. I love this. What a film. I mean, it is hard to separate the the JLo like story from the movie for me just because I like so recently watched her documentary and then I watched this movie and then I rewatched her documentary. <laughs> Cause she, she is a producer on it and she worked really hard to get it made. Yeah. She worked really hard to get it made. Um, no, well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to separate it. Let's also do our thing that we often will do and separate, uh, this story from real people. Yes. So what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about some thoughts. We're going to talk about some, some ideas, some psychology. We want to name, we are not talking about the people that this story is, uh, sort of written about, Yeah. which is, uh, two women, uh, Rosalind Keough, uh, and then, uh, Samantha Barbash. Mm-hmm. are sort of the two main women that are, you know, loosely written. Um, so we want to name that. We're, we're talking about the sort of the characters we see as portrayed by this movie, yeah, which yeah. we do not know these real people, which means we are not saying anything about the people that it's supposedly about. Yeah, I think even the research that I've done is, is much more broad yeah. than kind of character analysis. Yeah. Well, and so I read the whole story. So this was originally a story in New York Magazine um, by Jessica Pressler that very quickly got turned into this uh, film. It came out June 6th, 2018, and the movie came out in September of 2019. Seriously? So this was like, yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. So this is a real quick turnaround here. But um, even in the story... Uh, the the author Jessica Pressler names uh, Rosalind Keough, uh, who's the primary sort of informant within the story, as sort of the Constance Wu character, mm-hmm. um, as an uh, unreliable narrator and an unreliable source, mm. and so names that at times she would say things, and then at other times she would say, "No, that's not true." I was just telling stories, and so I I'm leaning into that in the sense that like even in the original text of this, this person, like right, the, the source the, material, the source material is not reliable source material. And so I think it's really important to name that we are not analyzing real people. We aren't even going to talk that 
intensely about these these characters necessarily, but we are going to talk about sort of the way that they're portrayed in the film, which is like, you know, a ninth degree of separation from reality. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's synopsize. Let's synopsize this. Real and quick. just, I mean, real quick, starts out with uh, Constance Wu at a strip club. Mm-hmm. Day one. Yeah. You can tell, like, or she, like, had previous experience, but this is kind of big leagues for her, and she feels like... First a, time at this new one. A, what is it? Like a small fish in a big pond? Small fish, big pond, and yeah. She's she's getting a little overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, it's a room full of uh, strippers. Um, we're going to use the term stripper to talk about this as that's the term that they tend to use Mm -hmm. uh, in the film. A lot of people prefer the term exotic dancer. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of words you can use. Um, If anybody describes themselves, use whatever word they use uh, as just a general rule, which is why we're going to say strippers for this. There's lots of fun cameos too with like Cardi B and Oh my God. Uh, Tracy Lysette. Mm -hmm. Like the, the cast of this is unbelievable. Also like, Really cool to see Tracy Lysette, who is trans and like out famous, mm-hmm. like incredibly gorgeous woman, like cast and have her transness not even need to be part of her story. Yeah. She's just among these beautiful women. Totally. I mean, I'm making her transness about it, uh, but but uh, yeah, but like. Well, Lizzo, it's like notable that it's not about her transness. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And she just, you know, allowing a trans person to, I don't know, I, I mean, maybe play a cis role, maybe not play a cis role. It doesn't actually matter. Mm-hmm. Like her character's history, totally. uh, her sex assigned at birth does not matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Lizzo, Cardi B also, which is, you know, for those, most of y'all listening, Cardi B was a stripper yeah. and talks very openly about her history as a stripper mm-hmm. um, in a very cool, very empowered kind of way. Um, so she's having a rough time trying to figure it out and then like you know the second night we see her at the club who comes in and works but Ramona, Ramona. played by Jen Pez I will say so I first saw this movie in the theater and I that scene which mm-hmm. like you know we all know like she worked super hard to kind of get that scene yeah. correct we talked about it the first half yeah, she, six months yep it was amazing uh, I like didn't breathe I, I just she just is so breathtaking in that scene. And I know that that's what the character is like supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. And she just nails it. And it's just, it's the most amazing thing. Because this is also a 50-year-old woman, which I just cannot This is a 50-year-old woman. Just in her prime. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, just looking, not even like a, oh, you look so good for. It's like, no. no Jennifer Lopez this woman is runs in this her place. prime. Yeah. In her prime. Totally. And she... Uh, has one of my favorite first lines of any character in any movie ever where she uh, does this dance, she grabs a bunch of money, and she walks off the stage, passing Constance Wu's character, um, Destiny or Dorothy, Mm -hmm. and just says, doesn't money make you horny? (laughs) She has so many good lines. I mean... She has so many good uh, lines. Like, at the end where she's like, you know, the whole world is a strip club. You're either, like, paying the money or doing the dance. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, um, it's the last line of the film. Yeah, yeah it's really, really good. But anyways, so... Spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, but anyways, so she kind of, like, Constance Wu really is drawn to her and wants to be kind of, like, have her as her mentor. Um, and so they start kind of teaming up and uh, 
Jayla Ramona like shows her the the ropes, kind of the more expensive parts of the club where like the money yeah. is made. Shows her how to and dance and how to make the money. Yeah, well, exactly. like how to really. Um, and there's so many great little lines. Like they're like, uh, no, always dance. If you're giving a lap dance, always move really slowly. Yeah. Work the clock and not the cock. <laughs> like these, these like you know, things that make a lot of sense, yeah. right? You're, you're like they're really going over the sort of business of how to hold as much power and like grace and dignity Absolutely. in this job, and really showing the like pride that they take. And really naming that, like, this is someplace, this is a, you know, a, a way that they are really owning who they want to be and how they want to do it on their terms, which is, like, very cool to see. Oh, yeah. These are women who are, like, proud and empowered, for sure. Um, proud and empowered. And, you know, doing well and taking care of their families. And, yes. you know, there's a lot of uh, just, like, showing that side of things. So, yeah. So, basically, that's, like, the gist of the movie. But then the... Financial crisis hits and Constant yeah, character hits. Uh, is pregnant. And so and she, yeah, she gets pregnant. Uh, and so she leaves stripping mm-hmm. all, right at the same time as the financial crisis mm-hmm. hits uh, for this dude named Johnny. And, you know, three cut to three years later, yep. 2011, mm-hmm. she's got this two and a half year old and she is now single again and she's got to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And so she comes back to the club and shortly after she returns, runs into Ramona Ramona. Mm -hmm. as you see Ramona walking in with, you know, a big spender, two other girls, Mm -hmm. uh, two other girls played by Kiki Palmer, legend, icon, just so good dream. Just what a dream boat. I also just saw Nope. She's so good. She's such a star. Um, She's so amazing. And Lily Reinhardt. Mm -hmm of Riverdale fame. Yep. Um, and so Ramona kind of takes her under her wing again mm-hmm. and then tells her the new Guess hustle. Guess Yeah. Guess what? Uh, so what did they figure out? How, what, what's the game? So Ramona is telling her, like, listen, this is, this is not the same strip club that you used to work mm-hmm. at. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, even when Constance or Destiny was trying to work there... Uh, originally like with when she didn't see Ramona yet it was like kind of scary the men were really aggressive Um, and so yeah it was not it was not working for her so Ramona um, is telling her about how she and her two associates (laughs) uh, associates yeah or sisters I think they like refer to themselves yeah they're sisters sisters. Um, they started doing this kind of fishing scheme where they go out Mm -hmm. to a bar and they Mm -hmm. find uh one Mm -hmm. of them kind of is flirting with with a guy who looks like he has a lot of money and these are they're really targeting wall street types right um wall street types who make crazy money who are married yeah uh and so it's a big part of it yes and so uh gets them drunk gets them feeling good suggests that they go to a strip club not knowing obviously that they work there and that they you know, have already coordinated with the club that they're going to get a kickback. Yeah. And so then they, they bring these guys in and you know, they're, they're doing drugs, they're having a good time and they just kind of take advantage of, of 
what these men were already down to do anyway. Right. And so, right. but really run and up their cards. And with the understanding or the knowledge that, you know, they can't really get caught because these men, you know, have these big, like, uh, tabs or like these big charges on their credit cards but they're married you know they they're they're like what they're not going to right. you know the the phone calls that they have are like you said you were you know you were having a great time right. like we had a great they time they signed the check they signed the check yeah they, they get the guys to sign the check yes. that's the the huge thing and then they and the rule that they give to the girls is like get the signature then you can party your ass mm-hmm. off but like get the signature right. because you need them. And so this, this cover is perfect. It's, it's airtight because they're married men mm-hmm. who are doing drugs and partying at a strip club. And right. like the fighting. excuse of like, right. oh, I did, I did this against my will. No one's going to believe it. It would also ruin their life more than the money that they lost if they were to exactly. like try and do anything legal about it. But exactly things get, uh, you know, things escalate. Um, because things escalate very quickly. They become very successful very quickly, mm-hmm. making thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And things start to get a little, they start to get greedy. Yeah. And there's also, you know, the these men, it's like a little risky. So then they start going to their regulars, but then they have to like make sure that they're not charging everything that they have. But then there's also a lot of men who are like not down to do drugs. Right. And so they start. Right. Creating, they create this concoction of like MDMA and ketamine. ketamine. So they're up enough that they're having a great time with the MDMA and the ketamine messes with their memory. Right. Um, uh, and so, yeah. and so that's, uh, you know, they, it kind of gets to that point um, where they're still kind of doing the same uh, like scheme, but are now adding some light drugging <laughs> to it. And then they see yeah. that other women, are, there's copycats. And so the club is yeah. now like, doesn't really need them. So these other women are benefiting from it. And so Ramona like decides to go independent. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need the club. So then it gets to hotel rooms and then it gets sketchier. And then, you know, mm-hmm. there's a, a man who like gets really hurt at his home and they have to drop him yeah, off at the he hospital. he tries to like jump off the roof into the pool yeah. with Kiki Palmer. And they essentially abandon him at the door to the emergency yeah. room which is very stressful yeah. right and Ramona at this point is bailing one of the new girls who they already don't trust out of um out of jail and Ramona is uh, definitely getting like very greedy at this point in terms of like just yeah. finding new girls finding new places like not wanting to split the maxing cut. out credit cards uh, yeah. like really going rather than doing um you know five or ten thousand in a night and then doing multiple nights with these people. Right. It's like uh, 50. Doing 50,000 yeah. right away. Yeah. And so one, uh, at one point, there's this guy, Doug, who is having a really hard time. Right. And he right. is going through a divorce. He, like, has lost his house. Uh, and so this kind of, like, shield that they had where these guys have a lot to lose if they were to go to the cops kind of falls apart with him. And so mm-hmm. they get a little sloppy. And so they you know, max out his credit cards and he's calling begging, like I need to make my mortgage payment. Constance or, you know, uh, destiny is feeling really bad. And Ramona is kind of like unwilling to have any empathy. And she throughout the, the movie, like really pleads this case of like, these are not victims. These are people who who, like 
you know, evaded uh, jail time and like criminal charges for like what they did to With, this country. You know, yeah. these are With not the financial crisis. Exactly. These mm-hmm. are not good people. And, you know, right. we're not doing anything wrong. And there's a lot of this kind of like sisterhood and like justification for for kind of what they're doing right Um, and it is a nice it's sort of a mirror to the ways in which they were exploited when they start out and they're stripping mm -hmm. and the club takes 40 percent of what they get right and the you know and then the the bouncers take you know 10 percent of what they get and then the manager takes 10 percent of what they get and so they walk home after a night of making hundreds of dollars and and come home with like 150 bucks right and so they sort of have flipped this game on the men, mm-hmm. uh, on men, sort of in general, yeah. men, but particularly these really, really rich men. This story of this guy uh, with the uh, son with autism and the mortgage mm-hmm. and all of that is beat for beat what is in this original story as well. Yeah, and the thing yeah. that in the original story uh, is one of the one of the others, not the one of the two main ones, uh, one of the women they had working under them said, listen, I'm sorry, but you got fleeced. Yeah, and she kind of... You had a good time, but you got fleeced, and that was recorded. Right. And so he has evidence, He, you know, because mm-hmm. even in the film, they kind of, like, he calls the police, tells them, they're like, don't take it seriously, because they're like, what... The, the, he starts mm-hmm. off like, I went to a strip club, and then like, okay, get out of here. Um, but because right. he has evidence, they start looking into it. Um, there's some other people who kind of corroborate and have similar stories yeah and so they end up getting arrested um Mm -hmm. and you know throughout the film it's like going back and forth between the reporter who's played by julia stiles Mm -hmm. interviewing um destiny and ramona or destiny yeah yeah, thank you and then one scene at the very end where she interviews ramona right but and it's a beautiful exploration in the film as well the the relationship between julia stiles character who's like a brown, educated, wealthy, white woman. Very privileged. Uh, I I love the the question of like, you know, did you grow up poor? And she said, no, we were were comfortable. Mm -hmm. And she said, like, that's only something a rich person would say. Like, you can't, to say you're comfortable is to to deny that, like, you don't know, you know, and she asked her the question, like, what would you do for a thousand dollars? I bet it's really different. Yeah. Than, some, than what someone else would do for a thousand dollars. Yeah, and you see, I mean, these women are, are, are like, they're spending money on themselves. You see them like getting, you know, fun like purses and dresses and stuff, but they're also like, you know, Destiny like uh, pays off her grandmother's mortgage. She like, yeah. you know, is able to provide her daughter with like a better life. Like these are much women better, who yeah. are working for their families. And so, um, yeah, so anyways, they get caught, uh, and uh, Destiny ends up taking the deal and kind of flipping, a plea flipping deal. on Ramona, and there's yeah. this really powerful scene like outside yes. of the, the police, station police station where Ramona, like she tells her that she took the deal, and Ramona is furious, but also completely understands because, yeah, because destiny says my daughter and that's, and that's yeah. how they get her to accept the plea deal as well. The police know like this is a tactic. Yeah. Of, and Ramona says motherhood is a special kind of mental illness. Yes. Yeah. And she, and she gets it. Real psych. <laughs> and she gets it. And even like you see, finally you see, uh, this interview that Julia Stiles character had with Ramona and like, 
she she only she speaks with about destiny slash dorothy in like with such empathy has a picture of her as a child in her wallet and says like how could anyone because she you know was abandoned by her parents uh how could anyone leave this little girl like what if we were you know, little girls together, like, what would our lives have been like if we, if I, I had been able to look out for her then and, like, all of this stuff. And mm-hmm. it's, like, you know, this is this is a really powerful story about, like, friendship and love between, like, these women who are trying mm-hmm. to earn a living. And, uh, but it's also about crime and, you know. Um, and take back their power. I mean, the interesting thing is these two women who are of low socioeconomic status, uh, you know, low levels of education, Mm -hmm. are running this business empire. Absolutely. That is duping. And they are, you know, pulling the wool over the eyes of, you know, all of these Wall Street people. I mean, it is is criminal, but also masterminded, right? Like, it is really, really smart. They're using the stigma of their work Yes. in their benefit. Yes. Because uh, even like being investigated was 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 difficult because men don't want to admit they're victimized. Men by wouldn't women. admit that they were being yeah that they were being fleeced by women. They were tricked by women, mm-hmm. and they do such a good job in the film of sort of the the scam itself. Right? Is they meet them at they they're just at a bar pretending like they're just there after work yeah. unwinding. And then they meet and they flatter these guys and they sort of get them in by being like, you know what? We've all got work at 9 a.m. tomorrow, but like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. You only live once. Yeah. Should we go to a strip club? Yeah. And yeah. Have you ever been to a strip club? I've been to one once. How was that? It was interesting. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's like something most adults should do once, you know, because it's, it's like interesting. And but I definitely was uncomfortable (laughs) it's not like you know my i feel like it's not the it's not where i'm you know meant to be but like no yeah i don't know like i think it's its own cultural experience i mean strip clubs are not built for you or me exactly but lots of women lots of gay men love a strip club they love like uh, uh last night i was out with uh i was out at my uh cousin's birthday party and a bunch of people after the party were going to go to a, a strip club in LA called Jumbo's Clown Room but it's like known for like the acrobatics of the dancers who are doing like unbelievable like pole dancing yeah. so it's not a full nude strip club there's sort of different spaces and places and cultures um, my first time at a strip club was somewhat uh, terrifying in that I think I was like 22 and it was a full nudity strip club, which is fine. Bodies, you mm-hmm. know, work, go off, do what you want to do. But in California, to be a fully nude strip club, it means you can't serve alcohol. So I walked into this place thinking I would be able to, like, have drinks mm. and be able to, like, whatever, whatever. And then they were like, it's a two-drink minimum now that you're in here and you can't have any alcohol. And so I was just like, may what? I please have a cranberry <laughs> juice? Like, it was, like, so... And then my second time was uh, in Las Vegas, actually with a former mentor of mine. Um, and, uh, or no, it was for her, yeah, I think she was there. It was like her bridal shower, I think. Um, and she, uh, we went and at this strip club, it uh, was called the Spearmint Rhino. And in Vegas, they do all these things to like, uh, the, the idea of like bringing people to the strip club is not 
originated in this film, right? They have promoters that their whole job, oh, totally. like you can be in Las Vegas and they'll be like, hey, do you want to ride in this limo to this strip club with free drinks? Like they will get you there. That is like tale as old as time. Um, but I went in and um, we ordered like hot wings and I'm sitting there like, you know, waiting for my food or whatever. And a, a dancer came up and was like, do you want to, do you want to dance? And I was like, oh no, thank you. Like I just was like, <laughs> and um, I was with one of the people we were with was a straight man. And, uh, and, you know, like 15 minutes later, one of the, one of the dancers was coming up and talking to him and, uh, you know, they had a little chat and, you know, he walked away or she, she walked away and he turned and he goes, just so you know, all the strippers now aren't going to talk to you because they know that you're gay. Because when they asked if you wanted to dance, you said, oh, no, thank you. (laughs) You gave yourself (laughs) away. Well, well, it's true. I was, I didn't want to be rude. I wasn't, I didn't want her to feel that I was rejecting her it just was I wasn't uh I'm not in the market yeah that's so funny I thought it was like yeah I went I was with a bunch of straight men and like there was a couple of us girls and I think one woman approached me and I was definitely like very uncomfortable (laughs) right it's not even stripping it's like just sexuality in general it's like not it's my christian upbringing uh, but yeah, public sexuality oh, yeah. is a strange. I was like, ah, um, but some of them got lap dances and stuff. I was just very fascinated culturally. I think it's it's a very strange, it's a very different world and a very different experience. And I think that there are some times where it can feel like this unbelievably cool and fun and empowering um, space. Mm-hmm very much in the realm of like, you know, burlesque dancing and where you feel like these women are getting paid to do what they love. I think Jumbo's clown room is actually kind of one of the best like examples of this. Actually when COVID hit the, the dancers all kind of like unionized in a way where they started doing like video, like zoom, like poll things and stuff like that. But, and again, there, there's no nudity. I don't think at Jumbo's it's like, I mean, very little clothing, but it's like, you know, lots of like, uh, bra panty sets that are uh, but they're really amazing amazing dancers and they did like this amazing like zoom coverage so that they all still got paid yeah, I mean, during COVID which is very cool there's also just a, so much athleticism that I think I mean even in this movie you see with like Ramona's performance oh. the sheer athleticism of what they're doing yeah. is so impressive um, yes. and so I, yeah. and she does it so calmly totally Jennifer Lopez it's really it's unbelievable. Yeah. The casting in this movie oh, is so just good. everybody is a good actor mm-hmm. in this film. Totally. Everybody's a good actor. And it is kind of like an out there over the top movie in a lot of ways, but like it feels very grounded mm-hmm. in reality. Um, I do think, and you were, you were speaking earlier about sort of this, the, the ways in which they view money and excess and how they're doing that. And I do think that like, it's a really nice example of this sort of duality of like both scarcity and excess yeah. and like the, the, the ways in which when you are raised in a culture of scarcity, um, you know, the, the, the sort of loud, big, broad ways to spend your money can feel incredibly empowering. It is sort of the goal. I mean, there, it, like, there are so many scenes like when Usher walks in and they're just like throwing money mm-hmm. places when Jennifer Lopez does her first dance and they're just like covering her with money when they have like stacks of cash that they're, st- you know, throwing in their boots or like, you know, they're all just giving each other these like super, super big lavish gifts. Like totally. that, it makes total sense as like a reaction to... Um, it, it is the thing that people like, 
you know, and again, this is a very classist term, but it's a very like nouveau riche way. And what I love uh, of spending mm-hmm. and what I love about this movie is even before they start the, the scams, um, like they're buying like Gucci bags with ones. And there's this scene where the, the cashier at like, you know, the, the department store is watching um, Constance Wu count out the ones and Jennifer Lopez looks at her and she goes, no, no, look at your screen. Like, what are you looking right. at? And it's just sort of like, they so own mm-hmm. uh, who they are. And that they and like deserve they to be no in that shame. space. Right? Yes, it's like absolutely. This is, they, this they is are money. worthy to be there. I, they can afford yeah. that bag and they're going to buy yeah, it. Exactly. I do think it's, yeah, it's really that's fun. an interesting point, though, like about financial literacy or even just like the psychology of a scarcity mindset. Um, yeah. I, I think that's super real because I did find myself... Um, at like when I was watching it, I'm like, no, you should like put that in a savings account or like, <laughs> you should yeah, like wanting them to do. Uh, well, it seems like Constance Wu did. Yeah, she seems like she's doing great. Um, and, you know, so it's interesting from that perspective, although also as like someone who like I have low financial literacy and I have no like I don't Same. I don't know where I would put my money either. But I'm like, you know, where people put where the rich people put their money. You should do that. Right. Right. Yeah. Just make take take that take that money and then make it do other monies. Yeah, make, make the mo- money. Make the money do money. Yeah. yeah. Um no, it's uh this movie's so good. It is. Okay. So for the stuff that we researched, one of the things yeah. that um I researched is related to what's her name? Tracy Lysette? Yeah. Okay. So there's an interesting kind of uh, like subplot with her and like, or not even subplot. It's just like her storyline is that she has a boyfriend and there's this whole scene where they're talking about oh, yeah. like how, what it's like to date as a stripper yeah. and how... Don't let him drop you off at the club. Right. And how mm-hmm. men, there's, there's all of these different kinds of like types of men I guess or like stages of it because some men you know they see it as like a status thing they think it's like really Mm -hmm. cool but then once Mm -hmm. you kind of surpass a level of intimacy in a relationship it becomes not as cool and there was this 2019 ethnographic study um, where this person was was interviewing a lot of these exotic dancers and coming Mm -hmm. up with these kind of personas um, and one of them was called hold on I have to find like the name it's boyfriends, lovers, and peeler pounders. So, what is a peeler? Pounder? I think it, it's like rooted in uh, like cutting stones or something. I don't know. It's like something real, but it's used in this context to be men who like want to collect women who are strippers and like see it as like some kind of game or like this like uh, achievement. Yes, currency. Yeah. Um, but it was a really interesting study or analysis um, because it is this tension between the stigma of the work that they're doing as well as the allure of these just very sexy women, right, who are in -hmm. a lot of ways, like, you know, empowered and stuff and how these, again, like heterosexual relationships have to name. (laughs) They specifically looked at heterosexual relationships as well as you know, the, the rates of violence against women as well. Huge, yeah. And so, you know, this person, uh, the researcher, she kind of, like, concluded, you know, it's not it's not 
having a career as an exotic dancer that causes violence against exotic dancers. It's the enforcement mm-hmm. of like, you know, feminist, like gender norms, patriarchal capitalism, normative monogamy right. through, you know, like uh, that totally. causes that. So it's not the, the sex work itself, but the stigma combined with just the prevalence of violence against women in general that makes romantic relationships with men like dangerous for exotic dancers. Right. Um, there, they, there's also like additional context that she was like these themes that she was seeing where these women had to engage in additional emotional labor uh, of stigma management. And this, right. re- and totally. you see it in the movie where she's reassuring her boyfriend, like, I'm you know, like going to have sex with you later. Like, don't worry. Like, you know, like just really like, mm-hmm trying to reassure him and reinforce or, or not reinforce manage the stigma that this this boyfriend is seeing when he's like in the club right because he dropped her off right he's in the club he looks very upset you know and right. trying to reassure them is additional emotional labor that they have to do that they are all i mean it's they're all reporting this additional labor well and some of them in the film also just were report like a totally diminished sex drive in general Mm -hmm. because of how much like sex is central in their work i actually this is just an anecdote i used to have a roommate who was like a shirtless waiter Mm -hmm. at a west hollywood bar which is again not stripping but is like you're paid to be hot Mm -hmm. and he had people touching him constantly with or without his consent uh mostly without and he was always, you know, had to be friendly and had to, you know, play along and be nice. And I think he could say, no, you may not like grab me there. But also the kind of thing where like, if he said it every time, he'd never stop yelling, right, you know? Right. And uh, and in the two and a half years that we lived together, uh, he had almost no sex drive because he was like, I'm so tired of people touching me that I don't that even labor, want yeah. to be that's so interesting um, yeah yeah i think i mean so yeah that and that's kind of like that management of people you know wanting to have parts of your body and stuff i'm I'm sure that is draining um especially from like a sex drive point of view so the other part of the study that i I really thought was interesting was talking about um the stick like where that stigma of sex work is rooted so it's like social Mm -hmm. beliefs about mixing commerce with intimacy Especially right. with like uh, you know gender norms uh, and patriarchal kind of expectations for traditional womanhood. Right. So right. this this researcher concludes you know the stigma of sex work is could be understood as like a punishment for making money mm-hmm. from labor that is generally expected to be provided by women for free in romantic relationships. Right. And I thought that that was really right. inter- interesting because that's the tension there that I think causes a lot of the friction in these these relationships and that additional management is because this thing that they feel entitled to within their intimate relationships is something that their partner is is like it's their business, right? Right, it's their property. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it, very like the, it's uh like there's like cognitive dissonance between like what patriarchal expectations are for like what their partner should be. Right. I mean, there's so and there's so much patriarchy in this whole, you know, enterprise and the ways in which society sort of holds it. But I think that makes a lot of sense, like that, that the idea is 
I mean, it's kind of the the opposite of nobody's going to buy the cow if you're giving away the milk for free. And it's like, no, he gets mad that you sell the milk when you give him the milk to like totally, you know, you know, when he gets the milk for free, he's mad that you're selling it to anyone else. Um, Again, this is a horrible like (laughs) women are not cows. No, but right. That's exactly this sort of phrase. A woman slash cow has the bodily autonomy to do with her milk as she pleases as she pleases or, or, you know, within the confines of their, you know, their relational agreement in general. And the, and in these cases, right, these are women who are like, it's like, this is a cow who makes her money by selling milk. Yeah. So she's given it to you for free. And now you're mad that she's still making her money the way she's always made her money. Right. Um, yeah. Which is the, so it's, the discord is not within the breach of the agreement. It's within men coming in and then With wanting the to change the terms. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. I mean, so the other kind of thing that I researched, which I think leads into what you researched, because there is this uh, distinction between like, what is sex work? Right. And what R- is I under mean, the umbrella of sex work? I, and there's so many things that could go totally. there, right? There's, I mean, you could do the, the obvious would be like, what, what, full service sex work Mm -hmm. uh and then it you know it fades into these things like you know massage or uh you know exotic dancing Mm -hmm. um camera work Mm -hmm. right just being on a camera by yourself and then even things like modeling Mm -hmm. or i mean there are there are people who have jobs like a sexual surrogate or things like that where you could you know a sex therapist Mm -hmm. right like what is sex work totally and i think it gets very messy there was a couple of studies that i i looked into that looked at kind of predictors of mm-hmm. um you know women who are engaged in like who are like uh exotic dancers mm-hmm. and who uh would engage so- sometimes in uh sex or like full service sex work right or transactional mm-hmm. sex um, mm-hmm. And we actually see this in the movie as well after the crisis, after the financial crisis, when Destiny goes back to work, that a lot right. of these women are actually not just dancing um, or stripping. They are like doing transactional uh, sex work as well. Right. And so this was something that she had like a very hard time uh like understanding or you know like mm-hmm. these these men were coming in they were aggressive they had expectations and she was not like wanting to do that um and that was like very difficult for her to kind of navigate right and it, and it became exploitative exactly. as well in her case exactly um and so there's some interesting like i mean i think a lot of these i had a little bit of a hard time by like dissecting these because there are just you know you put in your little statistical model you have your predictors mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. whatever comes out as statistically significant is not the same thing as you know all of these underlying it's like correlation and causation right totally these things are correlated but that does not mean that one causes the other so it's like a big Correct. disclaimer but basically disclaimer. um there was two studies one was in san diego county one was in baltimore um and so, you know, there's a high incidence of, uh, you know, uh, previously being, having been arrested. Um, there was, uh, like, in this Baltimore study, 26% reported having injected heroin in the past. 29% reported having smoked crack in the past three months. So there's some 
correlation with drug use. Um, and we see this in the, the movie as well of like mm-hmm. some of these women, certainly at the end that Ramona was uh, like recruiting had arrests or had drug use like issues, uh, dr- substance mm-hmm. abuse problems. Um, 57% reported using drugs in the club. Um, 61% reported engaging in transactional sex at least once. Um, 67% of those did so for the first time after beginning to dance. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but there was other factors that uh, were associated with what they called current sex exchange. Um, And so race, so being like non-white race, Mm -hmm. ever having been arrested and drug use. And so this was one, these same factors were seen in the San Diego study as well. and, you know, these were things that, like, you know, I guess made sense, especially with, like, maybe the substance abuse and the, the previous arrest. But, like, I also, I'm, I want to understand kind of the, the bigger picture here because this is, this is also to say that, you know, a, a lot of women are, are, who are, like, engaging in this work are, tend to be, like, of lower socioeconomic status, um, right. have, like, previous like uh, like history of like childhood abuse, um, you know there are some correlations there. So like, some yeah, but like what what is the actual story here? Because I feel like they're they're it's more like describing this population than like talking about right. what's actually cause and effect here. Yeah, well one of the so one of the articles that I found that uh, I didn't do full a full deep dive on I'm, I I. Brow, or I uh, skimmed it and now I'm pulling a little bit from it is referring to sex work as uh, within the the area of what's called like dirty work mm. um, meaning uh, quote unskilled again that is an incredibly like classist like you know nightmarish term mm-hmm. but like quote unskilled uh, jobs uh, that involve um, work that many find um, stigmatized mm-hmm. so cleaning houses mm-hmm. um you know, working in like sanitation, uh, sex work, like uh, yard work or landscaping, like dirty jobs, mm-hmm. right? The, the idea that you would be unclean by doing these jobs holds a lot of stigma mm-hmm. in our society. Um, it's seen as sort of shameful. It's seen as a lot of things like, you know, a lot of these sort of manual labor type jobs. Um, and I, I, I'm, guessing and actually some of the research I know points to like the likelihood of those doing those jobs as well is more likely to be people of color Mm -hmm. for instance and again this is not because people of color are unskilled this is not because people of color are um you know somehow dirty again these are called dirty jobs and there's a lot of it's not a great term um highly pejorative but so I think a lot of what this is speaking to is, yeah, not causation, but is more um, broadly. These things do not exist within a vacuum. Right. So who does these jobs? These are jobs that need to be mm-hmm. done. And so um, it often, these jobs go to those with the least privilege, right? They don't require a high school diploma, mm-hmm. right? We also know that people who don't graduate from high school are more likely to have abused drugs, mm-hmm. more likely to have, you know, experienced these different sort of um, like boundary encounters right. or these, uh, these barriers in their life. 
So I think that it makes sense that we're seeing these things. And again, I think it's so important that as we interpret these facts, we see these more as societal conditions and not as racial or cultural imperatives. Sure, or like ways um, to like blame an individual, right? Exactly, yeah. certainly not. And, and one of the things that I actually did research in that I, um, I'm really passionate about this, this work in general. And so um, I actually looked into an article from um, the Department of Veteran Affairs. So this is an NIH or um, uh, an NIH um, study uh, looking into culturally competent healthcare for sex workers. Mm and sort of an examination of the myths that stigmatize sex work and hinder access to care. So again, I think it's important to name that like there are people who could, uh, who could be exotic dancers, strippers, you know, performers in these ways that don't consider their work sex mm -hmm. work. Uh, I would encourage you to listen to how people describe what they do and use their words. There are also people that would consider stripping to be sex work. Um, this article in particular is talking uh, about an, uh, they use this they use an acronym which is full service sex work. Okay. Um, and so within this, we are talking about um, people who have transactional sex. Uh, they exchange sex for money. Um, this is I mean this is called the oldest profession in the world for a mm -hmm. reason. Humanity has not existed in a world in which the, this does not exist we don't we don't have humanity and culture without this job as a job i actually recently um read a, a fiction novel that talked about the murders of jack the ripper and the the way the stories are told was that jack the ripper killed sex workers or again we don't use the term prostitutes anymore mm -hmm. it's pejorative it's negative it's stigmatizing and so as we say sex worker you may be wondering like why aren't they just saying yeah. You know, any of these other words, right? So we don't use the word prostitute. You may find old articles, if y'all want to go in and do research, that refers to the act of prostitution. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's stigmatizing. And honestly, it, it's, I think it's over-clarifying this, like, full-service sex work as somehow different than using, you know, than cam work or, or porn or these different things right. which are not necessarily full-service and that you're not offering this to everyone as, as an access. So... Um, the idea uh, of using sex work is to sort of demystify and spread out this idea that like, you know, the, the concept could be broader. Right. But anyways, so in this, it talks about Jack the Ripper, who um, all of his, his main five victims, the five most famous victims of Jack the Ripper, uh, were all sort of portrayed in the press as sex workers. When, in fact, all five of these women were women who uh, were very poor and occasionally to keep a roof over their heads, to keep food in their bellies, would turn to one-off sex mm -hmm. work. Um, essentially selling, as the, as the sort of language of the time would say, selling their virtue um, to have a bed to sleep mm -hmm. in that night. And I really appreciated this book because it named that it was like, these are not, this was so common at the time because this has been something that particularly women have had to turn to for a very long time right. when it is always something that women have had access to and people are willing to pay mm -hmm. for this experience. And so criminalizing this uh, really serves primarily to endanger women right. rather than to actually protect women from the idea of sex work because 
there will always be a market for this. So the, it is believed that within the United States, um, and this article came out in 2019, so these are pretty recent. Within the United States, the full-service sex work industry generates $14 billion a year. Yes, I saw that statistic, yep. So there's estimated to be 1 to 2 million full-service sex workers, which is honestly just a little bit, I mean, it is, it is just under 1% of the U.S. population mm-hmm. are employed as full-service sex workers. Yeah. And, they, and, many, and experts actually believe this is probably an underestimate. Um, again, the women in this film are not full service sex workers, um, but I think it's important to to sort of. Th- this is what I'm really excited to to talk yeah. about. So that's what we're talking about. And guess what, y'all? It's my podcast and not yours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's yours with me, yeah. Joanna. But I'm talking right. to them, not yeah. you. I'm talking. I'm just, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, yeah. Anyways, um, so uh, you know, one of the things that is so important is you know to me obviously is also how to give mental health services. Mm-hmm. So uh, the ways in which we can sort of destigmatize this because escorts or people who work in massage parlors, brothels, adult film industry, exotic dancers, state regulated quote prostitutes, which is the term in Nevada, men, women, transgender folks who participate in survival sex, which is trading sex to meet the basic needs of daily life. Um, for any of the above, right? This sex can be consensual or non-consensual. So to say that again, you can be a sex worker and have someone non-consensually steal sex from mm-hmm. you or rape mm-hmm. you, right? You, these, these stigmas exist where a sex worker who has been, who, as it is right now without these protections, sex workers who are assaulted are very, very, very rarely given any sort of credibility. Yeah. Um, the idea that, um, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the, but if you're, if you're selling the milk, well, if I have a glass of your milk, then it must mean that, you, right, it's you for sale, it so I can it steal it. Um, it's for sale, so I can steal it. Again, I really hate I know, that metaphor, and I'm, I'm going to stop using it because it's really vile. It's just the it's the euphemism that people use, um, and it's just sounding worse and worse you know, as we keep talking. I did read a couple of studies looking at like um, mental health in sex workers, and mm-hmm. it there was like research that suggested, you know, it's not the sex work itself. It's the violence that is mm-hmm. perpetrated, the assault that happens. And right. that's what's associated with those negative mental health outcomes, not right. being a sex worker in and of itself. Totally. Totally. And there's really unique considerations within within this community, right? Um, it's important to realize that like this violence can provide significant health concerns, significant mental health concerns. Um, the stigma alienates people from social services. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, in places where sex work is legal, like Nevada, there are all sorts of laws when it comes to STI screenings. Um, there have been sex workers who are HIV positive and, um, and uh, incapable of supporting themselves financially. And when they turn to sex work, then were uh, imprisoned for assault with a deadly weapon. Um, like there are all sorts of ways in which like people really use this. And I actually had, um, and I won't name her specifically. I had uh, a professor in my first year uh, in my grad program um, that she in the law and ethics course was still teaching um, both sex negative and seraphobic, which is the term for when somebody's speaking in a derogatory, discriminatory, discriminatory way against people with HIV or AIDS um, and giving these studies to people about all of the things to be wary of ethically when treating people with HIV. Um, 
And I had to, like, I actually ended up having a formal reprimand through the university because I was, because uh, I corrected her in class and she found that to be um, unpleasant. Uh, but anyways, uh, so this is, this is, this goes deep, right? This is even in mental health and teaching and caring professions, the stigma is still there. Absolutely. Criminalization, yeah. policing, like all of these things are so overly disproportionately burdensome on this community. And I think to your point, like of the problem, not only lying in, you know, lack of access to adequate resources, but the way that people like advocating for this, who are supposed to, you know, like, uh, uh, academic researchers who are supposed to be like shedding light on this or objective in their research of it. There was one study that was, it's old, but it's, you know, from like decades ago, but it was looking at mental health in, in sex workers. And it was something insane of like, they did, a, it was a longitudinal study over 30 years and they concluded that every single participant met the criteria for antisocial disorder, personality disorder. Wow. And it's like, like this, there's a problem with how we're like uh, measuring things and who's measuring right. it, right? Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. But how are you like? How I mean, are we destigmatizing something if it's embedded into <laughs> the process? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, even to to you know go into this like legal side of it as well. Like, you know, the number of sex workers who are assaulted by police absolutely uh, and and by people because they are such a vulnerable population Mm -hmm. that and and this is criminalized in most states and so the idea of catching somebody um soliciting sex work and you know essentially giving them an ultimatum right of you know do you uh, allow me to assault Mm -hmm. you again allow not the appropriate but you know what i mean this sort of like paradigm this this dilemma that they're stuck in do i assault you or do you get arrested right your choice yeah and again this is not a choice Abusing their power. but it is there because we uh have created a society in which sex worker is criminalized and therefore they have no rights as sex workers mm-hmm. um so they, they experience all of these sorts of institutionalized violence discrimination um there's unaddressed mental health needs and barriers to Um, to care, barriers to engagement. Um, And so this study sought to essentially um, destigmatize full-service sex Mm -hmm. work. And so they they talked about several myths. One of the myths that they acknowledge is is the myth that full-service sex work should be criminalized. Mm -hmm. Um, They they talk about the, the differences between legalization, in which this is now regulated, there are laws where... Uh, full-service sex work can take place, uh, or the sort of, some states have leaned into this idea of decriminalization, where the penalties attributed to the act are no longer in effect, um, but the same laws that regulate other businesses can can regulate uh, full-service sex work, but unlike legalization, this doesn't have laws aimed to protect Mm. full-service sex Mm -hmm. work. Um, And so this model is like what's practiced in like New Zealand. Um, and New Zealand passed something called the Prostitution Reform Act, uh, which allowed um, allowed them to operate under the same employment and legal rights, but again, does not have very specific laws, ways to um, to protect sex workers. Right. So um, the second uh, myth that they acknowledge is that full-service sex work cannot be a feminist choice. Um, so one of the amazing things that's come out of the last decade when it comes to sex work is... OnlyFans. Mm-hmm. 
So it is, uh, so historically, right, porn studios, adult video studios, all of these things have really held sort of a monopoly on the adult video, you know, the sex video services, all of these things, uh, predominantly owned by white men, straight white men, you know, all of these things. Uh, And so one of the amazing things that's come out of streaming video online is OnlyFans which is a service in which the individual chooses how much their videos sell for, if it's a subscription, if it's a per video sales. Um, and one of the people that actually started this is this unbelievable uh, trans woman named T.S. Madison, who has been a judge on RuPaul's Drag Race, mm-hmm. and she's like had reality shows, and she's done all these things. But she actually was one of the first people to start owning. She started a website, her own website where she was in charge of where the money came yeah. in. And this sort of like created the model for, she's one of the, or, or she calls itself like the, she invented OnlyFans, that's sort of what she says. Um, but she really built a career on ho- taking back your power, taking back your rights to your things. So, so these kinds of things can be incredibly empowering, incredibly feminist. It can be this idea that you hold so much power over your own body and its appeal mm-hmm that you get to gatekeep who sees it, who doesn't. And so this idea, you know, that the stigmatization is that people think that it must be, you must have, quote, low self-esteem, right? Like that's the thing right. they would always, that, that's always been said about women and girls who show their mm-hmm. bodies. They must have very low self-esteem, which is again, and we've talked about this in different, uh, we've talked, you know, uh, we've talked about women once or twice <laughs> on this podcast. Yep. Uh, but we've talked about benevolent sexism. We've talked about the ways in which you can sort of collude with these sexist ideals. But um, so that one of the myths of this is that sex work um, cannot be a feminist choice. Totally. Um, and so uh, the next myth that they talk about is uh, that all full service sex workers are equally impacted by stigma. So lots of literature shows that stigma affects um, that there's, there's multiple negative effects on your social status, your psychological well-being, your physical health. A lot of this is, or there's like lots of effects due to stigma, mm-hmm. right? Social status, psychological well-being, physical health. And that these members of stigmatized groups are discriminated against in the housing market, workplace, education, healthcare, criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that because full service sex work is the identity that's so stigmatized, it often sort of preempts any other narrative within this, right? It's sort of what I was just naming with the, with the Jack the Ripper cases. And again, these are very old cases, but it's the idea that this person is a sex worker, which is also part of why we've started using the word sex work instead of uh, prostitution or prostitute, because once that word is there, no one hears anything else. And so um, full service sex workers face different levels of discrimination from their community, their society, um, due to uh, sex negativity, or what's in this article actually referred to as whorephobia, um, hmm. which is defined by professionals in the sex work industry as, or like by professionals in the sex work industry as a fear or hate of sex workers. Although, along with other forms of, of profession uh, of oppression, excuse me, other forms of oppression, it can also be sort of used to. Um, justify violence, discrimination, criminalization, all these other things, right? So whore... What's the phobia? Mm -hmm. Whore-phobia. Like... (laughs) W-H-O-R-E-phobia. I thought you were saying horror-phobia. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. Okay, they should maybe revisit. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, yes. Uh, and so this also, um, you know, ha ha there's just more consequences for women, right? We've talked mainly about women in full-service sex work. There are men in full-service sex yeah, work. Yeah, and there um, was a, a study that I looked at, too, and it was very unsurprisingly, like, they were looking at, um, you know, social consequences or the way that, like, people in, um, like, male and female sex workers, like, communities, uh, how they perceived, mm -hmm. they were viewed, and, like, m you know, the, the male sex workers like overwhelmingly uh endorsed like everyone's fine with it <laughs> like i have no there's no consequences or, you know like or not like being right. uh as susceptible to the stigma whereas like obviously yeah. that was not the case for female sex workers yeah it's different i mean it's very different and the ways in which like i, I think a, a male sex worker is uh, as well and a straight male sex worker uh, is often seen as like the most empowered, mm -hmm. right? The most sort of like, and he must be amazing at what he does. Right, right. Right, versus uh, women are often seen, and, and sort of the next, actually the next myth, right, is, is as a victim or that all sex workers, the next myth is that all sex workers experience childhood trauma. Right. And so research findings are actually really mixed about whether uh, full service sex workers are more um, likely to have a traumatic past. Mm. Uh, in comparison to the general population. So um, one of the things I think about with this, right, is we talked about um, when we did Call Me By Your Name, we talked about, um, you know, queer, there, uh, there's also mixed data about whether queer people, LGBT people uh, have a higher uh, incidence rate or a higher um, prevalence right. rate of history of sexual right. assault. And I think what's really important is to acknowledge that like, the people who are the most vulnerable populations are vulnerable to all sorts of mm -hmm. things. And so maybe someone becomes a sex worker, but again, that's not a very empowered view. Like uh, there, we do know with queer folks that like queer folks are also more likely to be victimized, mm -hmm. right? They're more likely to be isolated as kids. They're more likely to be, you know, there's a lot of things going on here. And so the narrative that like the sex work, or you know, that the trauma leads to sex work is not a fair assumption right, when we're already looking at the ways in which it's the directionality. And so it's like someone who is at risk for, you know, all sorts of victimization, um, attack, assault, oppression, um, you know, is, is more likely. But the, the research actually really doesn't even weigh this out. Um, it's very, very mixed. Um, and so, you know, according to what's called the oppression paradigm, it, it's just that the expression of patriarchal gender relations and, and male domination, you know, smaller these populations are just more likely to be victimized. Right. So it, generally speaking, like it, it doesn't totally weigh out in the way we want to. Um, and one of the last ones is that f full service sex work is not real work, right? That it is, you know, as I said, I, I used the quotation marks earlier of referring to this as like unskilled right. labor, right. right? And that this is just a different form of labor and you can be an expert, you can be, um, you can have a tremendous amount of skill. You can also enjoy this work. Right. Like there, you know, there are many people that feel incredibly empowered in the work. Um, I often think about in, uh, in Baby Mama where she's talking about surrogacy mm -hmm. and, um, and Sigourney Weaver. And she says, ooh, isn't that, a little, isn't that a little creepy? Like having somebody like grow your baby? And she goes, how is it different from your job? I bet you're good at it and you like doing it. And she's like, that's exactly what it's like for a surrogate. Right. And I think this is exactly the kind of thing that like sex work can be an incredibly like uh, empowering, like you can get a lot of agency, you can feel a lot of accomplishment in your job yeah. um, and doing it and doing it well. 
Um, and that like by really spending the time, and again, this, this article is talking about how to increase like clinical competency, how to decrease stigma, right? Like really spending the time with somebody, if somebody, if you're out there and you're a therapist, or if you're out there and you're not a therapist and you're speaking with somebody who shares with you that they are, you know, engaging in sex work, like talking to them with an open mind, really getting to know like their experience and not seeing it as a, oh God, what went wrong? Are you okay? When there are always narratives, right? Of, and, and this happens a lot of like the narrative of like somebody who worked her way through law school, you know, doing like cam Mm -hmm. shows and then because she did cam shows is no longer able to like get work as a mm-hmm. lawyer despite like graduating at the top of her class when it's like this this disempowerment is the real issue when like if she's able to do this job well and and you know be successful and she likes it then like it shouldn't you know we as a society need to chill out you know, about what consenting adults do with their bodies totally. you know this makes me think of though too is um is it Vanessa Williams who was like Miss America, yes. but then yes. like famously decrowned because yeah. she had she had posed nude exactly, and it's like yeah, it's you know this this uh, competition funded and run by men, and they yeah. get to make the rules about what level of like you know like I, I don't know it it just seems like so arbitrary in terms of like why you know she was she was doing this work and like was uh, later like completely penalized for it yeah. and had absolutely no say in it or like, you know, it just seems like very ridiculous. It is. Yeah. It's this pa- it patriarchal capitalism. Patriarchal capitalism. And, it, and it's part of this sort of puritanistic, you know, puritanical history that our country has, especially with the idea that the human body, the naked human body is far more obscene than murder, than death, than violence. When, um, you know, and we just, we continue to sort of like double down on this idea, which then drives all of this just further into the shadows, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it's the shame of it all that of course then just gives it power. Yeah. You know, shame is energy. How you direct it is, is, and the you. lack of shame, the empowerment actually being more of a threat than the actual work itself. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, there was one thing uh, that we wanted to name. Jo- Joanna and I actually both came across this same uh, dissertation that super um, was super interesting, super cool. It is uh, quite long, but uh, there is an author named Jacinta Bari, and they did uh, a dissertation for the University of Manitoba. Um, that was called Stigmatized in Stilettos, an Ethnographic Study of Stigma in Exotic Dancers' Lives. And in this dissertation, this is, so they're uh, an anthropologist. So this actually, uh, wait, I'm so sorry to interrupt. This is the ethnographic study that I did, but I think it was a different, it's the same researcher because I found like an article that she had published in 2019. Oh, okay. You probably found the article she published off of this. So I found the whole dissertation, which is like 266 pages. But in this, she spent one year as a, so this was in rural Canada, mm-hmm. where in this case, exotic dancers um, would go to like parties and things like that, right? And so she was a driver for exotic dancers for a year. And then she spent two years working as an exotic dancer to engage in this ethnographic study. And for those who did not do their bachelor's in uh, cultural anthropology, like I did, 
uh, they the an ethnography is basically like what you think of like the old school people like going in like living with a community, living with a culture, learning the culture, and then explaining the culture to this sort of you know the group that they originate totally, from yeah. and really learning the experience and so this uh, I didn't even want to we, we both really looked at this and we're like oh my gosh this is almost too rich yeah. to even like go into for it this be a book. it's really cool I will say like if you if you y'all look that up um, again stigmatized in stilettos if you look that up you will find it is public access because um, it's a dissertation and so you can find it it is actually like it reads very easily it, does, it yeah, is not yeah. overly jargony and it really is sort of like this person's story of her several Maybe years doing this work. Oh, yeah. I can try. Okay. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. Um, but, yeah, really, really cool. Highly recommend. Just like a fun read um, that if y'all want to drop it on your Kindle or something. It's, it was a cool. It's a very cool dissertation. Yeah. Um, and we know y'all love research. Just like us. Just like us. <laughs> Stars. They're just like us. <laughs> Ah, oh, this is a good movie. This is such a good movie. I really, I really enjoyed watching Yay. it. I had a great time with it. I have been Dr. Janie Barton. I have been Dr. Joanna Witkin. This has been another episode of Real Psych. Thanks for listening. Uh, like, subscribe, send us messages. We haven't, done a, we haven't done a message in a while. Maybe we'll try to do that. Oh, yeah. Please send us some DMs yeah. and we'll, uh, we'll read them out loud on the pod. Um, but we love we you love much, you. and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.